The following is a presentation of the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. From the birthplace of modern winemaking, Sonoma, California, welcome to the winemakers. Local experts Sam Katuri, Bart Hansen, and Brian Casey, along with host John Myers, invite you to listen in as they discuss all facets of winemaking. So sit back, pour yourself a glass, and let's hear what the guys have to say this week. Oh, that was a good pour, Brian. A very, 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 very good pour for a Napa Cabernet. Beautiful. Get a little spoiled today, John. You think so? (laughs) (laughs) Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Winemakers. I'm John Myers with, of course, uh, Bart Hansen and Brian Casey. Sam is on special assignment today. And we are with a man who pretty much needs no introduction or titles or anything. Welcome, Andy Beckstorfer, to the podcast. How are you doing today? Doing great. Springtime in the Napa Valley. Oh, Best place to be. No kidding. It's a beautiful day here, too. Yeah, I yeah. mean, it, it is just the spring has come so rapidly. Yeah. All, it's like all of a sudden it's summer. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you're a lucky man. You're living here. And this is your office. Uh, we're over here on Con Creek Road. And uh, beautiful spot in the world, isn't it? Beautiful spot. We're going to stay. You think so? <laughs> can, can you tell us a little history about this house? This house? Well, this house, this property was originally uh, owned by Bowie Vineyard. They bought it in 1928, and they, they called it BV Number 3. And there was an old house on this property when we bought it. We bought it in 1989, 1989 and decided to move our farming offices over here. So... We wanted to sort of fit the character of the of the place and okay. sort of say something about who we were and the way we looked at stuff. Yeah. Now we had farmed for uh, and been involved with Inglenook and Boyu for a long time, and so the the basic model was the old child's house at uh, over at Inglenook. Right. So we went there, but then we also went around the Napa Valley looking for different colors and schemes and roofings and all that kind of stuff. And then we built this place in, um, I think it was 1991. Okay. 1991. And we wanted it from the outside to look like it you know, had been here forever and on the inside to be very efficient. Right. But we went all over the county, if you will, uh, looking for old stuff. If you'll notice, like these doors here, they don't fit. Right. But they came from an old right. architectural salvage right. company in Berkeley. Right. And the same thing with the hardware and yeah. all of those, those kind of things, awesome. as well as some light chambers in the in an Art Nouveau style. Yeah. Did you get to pick these doors out yourself? I did. Excellent. But the thing was, they were all painted. We had no idea what they were. Right. They were just the size of doors we wanted, but that walnut burl, we had no idea it was there. Yeah. Then we just started to clean it up. I love architectural salvage places. Yeah. Uh, they had plenty in Chicago when I was there. And yeah. we, you know, we'd go, we, you'd find anything there. All sorts of stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. There's a place around here now up uh, off of, I think, off Petrified Forest Road called Mountain Home. Yes. Mountain Home Road. That guy has some unbelievable stuff if you're looking for things. Is that right? I mean, really, really unbelievable old stuff. And it's a resort now, too. Right. Which he's done in that, that style. But he has just yards and yards of old doors and windows and stuff. I had no idea. I've seen that sign a million times. Um, and that's what that is. That's interesting. Yeah. Hey, also, you know, in your beautiful office here, I see your 
proudly um, displaying the flag of Virginia. That's where you're from originally. Is that correct? I'm a Virginian living in California. There you go. Okay. <laughs> How's that going for I, I you? I probably shouldn't say that. But, uh, well, didn't you wonder, Bart, where the accent came from? <laughs> I, I, I have to admit, I did cheat to look to see and, yeah, and yeah. did know you were from Virginia. Hasn't quite lost it in 50 years, I think, of being no. here in, in Napa, right? Oh, you go home and it gets thicker. You know, right. then you come back, you just sort of renew the, the yeah. old history. Yeah. And, yeah. and and your family was in farming in Virginia. No, they were not. They were not. So so what was what did you what was your childhood like, or you know I mean, you know what I mean? What what was your background from there? My if background, you don't mind my, sharing. My father was in the lumber and millwork business. Okay, and he built houses and he he supplied everything. It wasn't that was the days before the big box stores. Right. So daddy would start with the floor joists and he'd end with the roof joists and they would do everything else and he could make cabinets and he could do everything. So, but it was lumber and mill work. That's okay. what my family did back there. Cool. Yeah. yeah. Well, the, let's talk about the elephant in the room sitting to my left. I mean, we haven't really introduced I think him on this <laughs> podcast properly. No, not quite and, yet. Andy Bextoffer is is probably the most well-known grape grower in California, if not the United States. Um, and probably most of our listeners are familiar with the Tokalon Vineyard, which any of us that have worked in restaurants or been wine lovers for any period of time around here have had some of these incredible wines. But he's also got other things going on in Mendocino and Lake County. Um, kind of interested myself. To, I mean, we can, there's so many things to talk about with you. It almost is overwhelming to me in some ways. <laughs> I mean, sort of like when we were with, uh, you know, Ren, um, yeah. or, or, um, even talking to Tor in, Tor, in yeah. some ways yeah. that the, the history of Napa Valley, I mean, you've seen everything you were here in, I think 69, um, came over here and, and, but you know, what I was curious about is, is, um, you know, you kind of came over here and got entrenched in the farming and vineyards, but when you were going to school, like high school and college, what did, what did you think you were going to be doing when you left college? Well, my, uh, my parents were in the basically residential building business. And my degree, my undergraduate degree was construction management in the engineering department. I thought I would build things. Yeah. That's what I planned to do is to build things. Now you get to grow things. And that was the shift at one point, which fit a little bit. But uh, basically, that's what I thought I would do. And when I got out of school, the uh, well, first of all, I'm one of eight kids. And I'm number two. And so I will never forget the day my dad said to me, you know, you can't come in the business. You're pretty smart. You'll do fine. But I'm not sure about your brothers and sisters. <laughs> Wait, and he said this to you not in front of them. No. Yeah. No, no. And that, that was great. So I went to work for the telephone company. And I was in Washington, Washington, Washington D.C. And then I went in the Army. I was two years in the Army stationed at the Presidio of San Francisco. Oh, nice. No way. Nice duty. It was nice okay. duty. It was the kind of thing that I'll never forget. We went out on our bivouac, the final thing. Where I was an officer in the ROTC. And we came back and they said, stop. We're just going to stay on the bus. We're changing all of your assignments because of whatever. I don't know. I mean, in those days, it was the, you know, the Berlin uh, 
not the Berlin Wall, but the they wouldn't let them in through Berlin, the, the big march to get people in Berlin. So it changed everything. Right. And so they came back and they asked us, where would you like to go? And I didn't have any idea, but I had a buddy from Santa Barbara, Mike Rudder. And so he said, well, you want to go to the Presidio of San Francisco or you want to go to Fort Lewis, Washington? So I put down Presidio of San Francisco, Fort Lewis second, and I got it. So I came out here for two years and ran the motor pool. Hmm. And that was really important because, you know, the two things about the military then, at least, and this is 1963, 60, no, no, 19, it was 19, I got 1961, this is 1961. If uh, you were retiring as an officer, and, and to a certain extent, if you were E8, E6, the highest ranks of enlisted, you get to pick your last post so that all of these guys always picked a place that had a general hospital. And I think there's eight general hospitals in the United States, one of which was Letterman General Hospital. Mm -hmm. So all these guys who had driven the generals in, in uh, Korea, uh, Vietnam was just started, E7s, E8s came and worked for me. And I learned a tremendous amount in mm -hmm. those days. I learned very quickly that the sergeants run their army, you know, <laughs> and you never forget that. And that, sometimes it's the secretaries run the business. Yeah. Uh, but I spent two years here, went back, telephone company, then went to uh, Dartmouth for an MBA. Yeah. And is that one of the reasons that I think Hugh Blind sent you out here was that you had already been out to the Bay Area? No. Or did you volunteer for that? No. The thing, the thing is that after I got my MBA, Hugh Blind looked to expand their business. And they had, they had some business. They had, um, what was it? They had vermouth, I think, or Hugh Blind vermouth or something. They bought it out of Bakersfield. They were associated with a guy named Lou Gomberg. You've heard the Gomberg. I, yeah, the Gomberg, yeah. yeah. Lou, Lou said to them, you know, I think United Vintners can be bought. And United Vintners is a co-op, it's a co-op of co-ops, but they owned Italian Swiss Collie in England. And Hublin had been in the wine business, but Harvey's Bristol Cream and Harvey Sherry's, all, all foreign stuff. Right. So they said, let's take a look. So they sent me out here to do the analysis of that, hmm. that of that, of the should we buy. And I can remember the president said to me, uh, don't tell me it's a bad acquisition. I know that. I know that. He said, but tell me what we need to do to make it better. Huh. And so remember, this is 1969. <laughs> and so the only premium wine businesses then were Almaden and Parmesan. Yep. As high as it got. Right. I mean, a little bitty old Bolu or Christian Brothers. And so we figured that one grape, you know, in those days, you sold your grapes and you got told what the price was in February afterwards, and just big fluctuations. Uh, and then the, um, the, the Allied Grape Growers, which was a co-op of co-ops, mainly oriented in, in the San Joaquin Valley, mostly had French Columbard. That was what they did. Yeah, and, right. but, and so one was cut down the fluctuations, see if we can, can build, can we build a, pre, a truly premium wine business? And three, get access to the right grapes. So when we took that back, they said, we'll see if we can do it. So I came out to see if we could do that and negotiate the purchase. Yeah. And uh, at this point, were you married? Because you've been married over 60 years, I think. I was married in high school, I think. Yeah. <laughs> you think? No, I was married. I've been married 60 some years. I married my junior year in college. But I was, I was married 
and I had three children. Three children. When I married, I married. No, I had four children. I had four children, and I was married. Yeah, one more came after we came out here. Yeah. Okay, so everyone came out with you. It wasn't like an exploratory thing where they said, "Go out there, take a look, and then come back and let us know." No, no. The, the first trip was, you know, to to look to see should we buy this place. Yeah. And then I had been spending a lot of time on the road coming back and forth here. So once we decided to buy that, and then all of a sudden, Bowie Vineyard became available. So we did that one. And so then I said, look, I'm either going to go out there and live, I'm going to be here, but I can't spend the time coming back and forth. So they said, go out. And, and they had a guy who uh, had just become the president of United Ventures, which is Italian Swiss and thing, and said, I'll teach you the marketing business. Named Vic Bonomo, mm -hmm. and so I came out for that. But then, I mean, I keep on telling the story, but you can stop it at any point you want. No. Nope. Uh, at that point, somebody in the United Farm Workers decided, since Hublin had bought Allied Grape Growers, yeah. which was all the co-ops all over California, hundreds of growers, that we could force all of them into the union. Mm -hmm. Now we had a contract. With Allied Grape Growers, as part of the purchase deal, it said we had to buy their grapes. We couldn't say no, and that was one of the French Columbard problems. But we couldn't convince them of that, so they, they boycotted us. And so I got the job of negotiating that settlement, and, and it kind of interesting. They wouldn't allow, the Allied Grape Growers wouldn't allow us to show Chavez and his group the contract. So I'd done that for too long, so the, this story's around. Jerry Cohen, who was their lawyer, was kind of a wild guy, but it's kind of fun to be with. I said, you come to my house and I'll show you the contract. I didn't tell anybody. And so he, he was to come over there. And I'll never forget just to play with him. They were also, Jerry, big, big beer drinker. And so uh, I just stacked the place with Ham's beer, which he was boycotting. <laughs> <laughs> Hams. Uh, and he started drinking and he said by the way somebody else is coming i said jerry you, the deal was just me and you she said no she's got to come she's got to see so dolores dolores huerta came to my house now i don't know if you guys remember but she was the bad one she was caesar was a, a bit of a saint yeah. so uh she knocked on the door betty took the kids upstairs and she came and we met and i showed him the contract and a week later we, we settled the deal but we had a set uh, we we wanted to uh, expand the vineyards here to grow Cabernet Sauvignon. And this all seems so impossible today, but Napa Valley was not Cabernet country. It was not hospitality, right. the wine. It wasn't anything like that. And we couldn't convince any of these farmers to plant Cabernet. They said, it's crazy. I get less money than Johannesburg Riesling and less yield. So I went around and knocked on doors, I developed the economics of Prime Varietal Vineyards, and I would come to you and Chase Manhattan Bank in, in New York and say, and you say, fine, who's going to farm? So we had to set up a farming company. And I couldn't get, I could get farmers who were here to farm 100 acres the old way, but I needed to get somebody to farm 500 acres the new way. And we thought things needed to change. We thought viticulture needed to change. So we'd set up this company, just begin to set it up. And then when we when then we we signed with the union with United Farm Workers, and the Hublin people said, "No, no, we've got to control it. You got to go run it." So I got out of the United Ventures marketing business and into running this little company we call Vinifera Development Corporation. Wow. 
And it's kind of interesting. In those days, it's just, when you think about it, it seems impossible. Um, there were two trained viticulturists in the Napa Valley. Right. One was Dewey Anderson at Christian Brothers, the other was Charlie Williams, who ended up at Minerva. We came in and we immediately brought three more, plus a new vineyard manager of the College of Education. From where? Well, they, um, they uh, uh, Bob Steinhauer had been with a guy named Roy Harrison. They would work for Shenley down in Fairfield and they yeah. experienced the union. Yep. Kirby Kwashnick and Ron Lapopolo were recent graduates of Fresno State. Okay. So it was those guys. And then Steve, Steve Yates, who was the vineyard manager, was uh, from Cal Poly, but all college right. people. So young and eager to learn. And, and science-based. That's it. Right? That's the big difference, science-based. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of thing like, who the hell does that kid think he is coming in here? Right. To, I mean, right. think about telling us how to do stuff. We've been doing it forever. Yeah. So, but... Was that met with old time resistance? I think they, I think they like they disliked Hublin more than they disliked me. Okay, <laughs> but I was corporate, you know, and I'd come in and and for example, the people at Bowyer, although my dad wouldn't spend any money at all on anything, if they had um, they had like seven hundred acres of vineyard, and it was Andre and a Hispanic uh, manager and bunch of managers and we came in and took it over which Andre didn't like but began to put modern viticulture in it and plus we expanded that to 3,000 acres to farm which he couldn't have handled either and also he, he also had a farm Inglenook in Inglenook and Bowyer I don't know there's all sorts of stories of romances broken and all that crap I don't know between the Madame de Pen and John Daniel <laughs> but they wanted no part of Inglenook so we took that over uh, and that was controversial uh, but we started farming in a big way, in yeah. a big way then. And, and the other part of that that's interesting when you talk about the development of the Napa Valley is that um, we we weren't getting paid uh, as growers. And the, um, the the only people who talked about pricing were the North Coast grape growers, and they priced Napa, Sonoma, and Mendocino Cabernet all the same price. Yeah. Right. It's all commodity pricing. Anyway. Right. And then... In 19, let me just, 73, I think the price of Cabernet here was 800 bucks. And so in 74 is $400. $800 a ton? $800 a ton. The $400 a ton. <laughs> I thought go. he was going to say a lot less, actually. <laughs> yeah. Really? Yeah. It, it went back, it went down by 76. I went to 300. Yeah. Yeah. So the, one of the things I remember that the growers had no idea their costs. And then again, you see my engineering and MBA coming in practice. I mean, they, they figured their cost, their cost did not include anything for the farmer. No depreciation, no way to replace their equipment, anything like that. Yeah. And I can remember Bob and Dobby were saying, you know, we're friends of the farmers. We're paying. I said, Bob, you're not. You're not even paying us a cost. He said, what do you mean? Because he hadn't seen it. And so when we showed him that, he, he said, let's. Let's talk, and that started the bottle price formula and those yeah. kind of things for us to move it from commodity pricing to specialty pricing. You know, the price of the grapes depends upon the quality of the wine as measured by what the consumer would pay. Yeah. yeah. And we did that through the Grape Growers Association. And that was in nineteen seventy-five. Yeah. And and talk a little bit about Andre Chilichev and and maybe the introduction with him and um, Bob Steinhauer and kind yeah. of putting this 
this renegade that's been out in the vineyard and this new kid coming along? Yeah. Well, you know, Andre hated the idea that he couldn't do the vineyards anymore. He hated that idea. And so because he believed that that the winery needed to be in control of it. That's correct. Yeah, that's that's the traditional. That's correct. Right. But he didn't he didn't have a chance. I mean, he, he went from 600 acres to 3000 to including Inglewood and having union workers. Right. I mean, I don't know how well you knew Andre, but he's not put up with that. Yeah. So what we did is we put the young and the old together, Bob Steinhauer and Andre Chelder, and they loved each other. Bobby, he called him Bobby, and they spent so much time. And a lot of people give Andre credit for a lot of things on the winemaking side, but I think he made an important contribution through us on the vineyard side too, working with Bob, the old and the new, doing stuff. Yeah. Uh, but he was, he was great. He was great. He was now, when you mentioned the fact that you were sort of pushing the Cabernet agenda, that seems completely crazy to those of us nowadays. But yeah. but what what was the thinking and what were you thinking? Um, I mean, why was Cabernet important to you back then? And why did you think that that was the future of grapes? Because they were growing other things and even getting more money for other things. Well, you remember, we had bought two wineries, Inglenook and Boyu, and both of them were big Cabernet wineries. Yeah. The history of Cabernet in California is the history of Boyer and Inglenook. And so that was the business we bought and the varietal we needed to expand. Because because it had gone away from that. It had had all gone to blends um, and and just... It just had never never come much further. If you would look back, and I've got the records here of how much Cabernet was here and who right. was producing it. I mean, Charles Krug was selling um, Saint and Blanc, right. you know, and Mart- Martini was selling, I forget what he was selling, something, right. you know, um, but nobody was selling Cabernet and nobody was growing. Right. So we needed Cabernet. Yeah. Hmm. You know, uh, in the articles I've read, you talk a lot about going from a, a Bordeaux style of pricing and, and marketing to a Burgundian style. Yes. Can you uh, talk a little bit about that? Okay. We we were now to the 70s, and when you got into the 80s, the the best wines, from, best Cabernet wines from Napa were were reserves. BV Private Reserve, Mandavi Reserve, all these, they were all blends all blends and the winemakers were all blending basically to the same consumer taste so the one what were they blending they were blending different cabernets or you know and remember up until 1983 you only had to have 51 percent cabernet in a cabernet 49 percent could be other varietals you only had 51 percent to call it napa valley 49 percent could be other things. I don't but, think a lot of people know that. Right. It I, sounds so crazy to us now. It sounds so crazy now. I could I could tell you about the federal hearings. I think I testified three or four times. Yeah. And everybody and the other thing they wanted to do, they wanted to make the North Coast fourteen counties down to Santa Barbara. That was the ba- that was the basis of that labeling thing. But when we got involved and the consumer got involved, we said, wait a minute, there's some other things wrong here, like this fifty one percent. Yeah. So that got changed. I think the hearings were in 76, 77, 78, and the change, you know, they give you some buyout. So the change had to happen in the early, early 80s. But that was one thing. But basically what they were doing, to answer John's question, was they were blending and all, was, all blend. And so that the wine writers began to say, that's vanilla and chocolate. That's the 
Bordeaux, way Chateau Lafitte, all those things are blends. And we said, how do you improve that? How do you make the wines better and more unique? And we say, let's try the Burgundian way, emphasizing terroir. And in that way, you'll get uniqueness, you'll get complexity in the wines. So we started that idea. And we also started buying vineyards with pedigrees with heritage. You know, because if, if we're going to go terroir-based, you've got to buy the best terroir. And you've got to do that. But that, it was wine quality thing, basically, that started that shift. And today, you know, if you look, 90% of the best wines are all vineyard desert. You know, they're unique. They're complex. Yeah. It's personality. Yeah. It, it, changed, it changed the valley. It, it changed the way the valley presents itself. Do, do you have any feelings on what really... When should a wine be a vineyard designate? So, you know, there's a lot of, and, and, and I've, I've been, I've done this myself, call out a vineyard to, to just to let people know where it came from. Yeah. But maybe the vineyard doesn't have a lot of pedigree. You know, maybe it's a new young vineyard. Um, it's become to the point where everything is a vineyard designate. Yeah. And I know when I was first in the business, just as you say, there were very few but they were unique, like they were specific and maybe not as good as the blended wine or as it's approachable, but they were unique. And that's why they were called out. Uh, what, what are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, How the one, you, one you're probably talking about is Heist Moss Vineyard, right. which has a major defect, I guess, unless you like that mint flavor. Right. And then Diamond Mountain had, but that was about all that, that was there. But right. you know, the thing about when should we venue designate? it's when the the ground, the terroir is good enough to do that long term. Now, we we have what we call heritage vineyards, and they're vineyards that were that were planted back in the 1800s. Tokelon was planted in 1868, Dr. Crane in 1858, Les was 18s, all those things. My feeling has been about vineyards for the best of the vineyards is the total is more than the sum of the parts. You just can't say what the soil is and what the longitude is. You've got to, you, it's how they mix, the timing of all of that stuff. And if you really want to show, you want to be sure of that, it has to be done over a long period of time. Different wine styles, different winemakers, different everything. And so that's when we went to buy these heritage vineyards. Because we knew that over a period of time, they'd always produce the best of red wines. It wasn't Cabernet, some of it was Cabernet, it wasn't. And so we felt we had the right to vineyard designate those. Now, we have other vineyards. I mean, for example, this vineyard is 250 acres, but only about 40 acres of it is vineyard designate. Okay. Make. Great vineyards make great wines. I don't care whatever. They can do whatever they want, but if they don't make great wines, they're not great vineyards. Right. So we, look, we were looking for vineyards that had made great wines over a long period of time, and then we vineyard designated them. And that has that integrity. You know, it's like the Tokelon situation. There's, Madawi has a trademark, and they put Tokelon on lots of things. But if it says Beckstar for Tokelon, it came from ground that was owned by Hamilton Crab, was planted by Hamilton Crab, and the grapes from that were sold as Tokelon. That's integrity, and we, we fight for that integrity. And that's the same thing for these other vineyards. Uh, I believe that there are vineyards in Napa Valley that people don't know where they are, and the people farming who are of that quality, maybe not established, but the ground is there. So then it takes somebody to build that brand. But it has to be, it has to make great wine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Well, let's get into Tokolon. How did you acquire that property? Um, and and um, I mean, what was it that you tasted wines from that vineyard? You had been working with those vines. And then how did that opportunity present itself for you to actually purchase it? That, that venue was BV number four. BV bought that property in 1940 and had mm-hmm. farmed it since. And BV never, never really wanted you to know what it went into private reserve and what didn't, but a lot of that did. And we started farming it in, actually, we started farming, we farmed it in 1970, started farming in 71. Then when at a point in the early 80s, after we had bought the company, Hublin decided they didn't want to be involved with the union anymore. Hmm. So they kicked us out. So we weren't farming it anymore. But then uh, Hublin, so, Hublin sold to the Hublin sold to Reynolds and then it sold to Diageo. That Diageo is part of Treasury. But Diageo owned it then. So in 1993, and this is, people think that, you know, when I, started the farming company, I got all the Hublon land. I got no Hublon land. 20 years later in 1993, Hublon decides we've got too much Cabernet. We need to get rid of some Cabernet. <laughs> Commodity Cabernet. And you can so, see and, the look on his face. <laughs> and, and so it just, and so we had a, we, we, we had grape contracts to sell them things that they, they wanted some adjustments to that and all those kind of things. So uh, they said we had 2,000 tons too much Cabernet. So we said, well, we'd like to buy that one. And Bob and Davi said he wouldn't pay the price. So we got to buy it in exchange with lots of stuff with the, uh, with the great pricing, you know. Yeah. 20 years later, 20 years after we had originally purchased the vineyard. Yeah. We, we purchased this. I mean, again, because people say, you know, Andy, Hublin made Andy rich, right? And so he did again. We bought the company, bought the farming company in 1973, and we borrowed all the money. And you probably don't even remember, but in 73, the prime rate was 6%. We borrowed it all at prime plus one. Mm. By 1975, it was 17%. Ouch. Ouch. So we lost (laughs) everything except the farming company in 78. Uh They took it all back. And so uh, we we began to buy vineyards then. And Hublin, this was BV number three, and Hublin did not want to be in the real estate, but in the vineyard business. So they packaged this with a piece of property that we had bought across the street, which is the old keg property's Round Pond. Yeah, Round right. Pond. And sold it to the Connecticut Mutual Life Insurance Company. And insurance companies, they wanted to make a loan on it. We said, no, you got to buy it. So they bought it, but they don't hold things. Insurance companies don't hold property like that. So in 1988, 89, they wanted to get rid of it. And Hublin had a first right of refusal on it, but they didn't want any land either. Hmm. So that's when I bought it from the Connecticut Mutual Life Insurance Company now. And this is 15 years after I bought the company in 1973. Okay. The compi- to finish that story, uh, in, in down in Canaris, uh, Hublin had bought... Uh, I think they bought it about 1965 or something like that. Because, Andre, I don't, have you ever experienced the 1968 Beaulieu Pinot Noir? I've no. only heard of it. Yeah, okay. Yeah. But he produced that. Right. And so that was great. So they bought this property down there. Well, now, 
Hublon is now sold to Reynolds, to Diageo, and that's owned by Treasury. And Treasury can't get rid of it. I mean, they must have been on the market four years, five years. Mm. So finally, we bought in, in 2017, I think in 2017, we bought BV number five. So I ended up owning three of the Hublon properties, but but nothing from Hublon. Right. right? I mean, nothing from Hublon long right. way that. It, that. More of the fact that you were just paying attention. I was paying attention, and we knew what, the, what it was like, you know, what the ground was like. Uh, although it was, you know, the kind of thing is when we bought, when we bought uh, Toklon in, in 93, it was totally phylloxerated. I mean, they didn't want to spend the money to redo it. Right. You know, and that's part of the problem here. Well, the problem here was Connecticut Mutual just wanted out. And then with BV number five, same thing. Needed to be replanted. They didn't want to yeah. spend the money. Yeah. but And phylloxera is, is sort of a... I mean, that's a big thread in, in, in the story that happened here in Napa Valley is you realize at some point you were going to have to replant everything. Um, well, that's yeah. the biggest thing that happened to us. You know, we, yeah. we decided we needed to go uh, you know, emphasize the terroir, but we couldn't have emphasized the terroir with those vines that existed before phylloxera. Right. You know, I, I've said often that, you know, up until phylloxera, we were farmers. We did what was done before. When phylloxera happened, all we had to do was replace the rootings. But we replaced the rootings and the science, and we changed the whole trellis system. We became viticulturists. And so we're now yep. able to mine that terroir. You have this great terroir, and now you're able to mine it. Yep. And so it was, oh, it was late 90s before those vines began to really produce. And it was 2000, almost 2000, before we really began to do and you designate them and make news about it. Yeah. I mean, you got a reset, a do-over, a mulligan. You got to come and then do all the spacing the way you wanted and row orientation and 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 all of those and, and things. And did you do all those? We you... did all of those things. Okay. Yeah. We brought science to it. Yeah. What uh, rootstock did you go to? We did. That was, it used to be you, everybody used AXR. We used 10, 15 different rootstocks, and nobody knew what was right. It was drought resistant or it wasn't. It was in the weak soils or wasn't. Today, it's still nobody knows exactly. That's a real good <laughs> You're idea. You're just kind of throwing a dart up against oh, the wall. Well, we're dealing with scientists now, and they knew whether they, they wanted more drought resistant, they wanted less vigorous, they wanted all different things. But <clears throat> these very technical situations. You might plant three different rootstocks in one. I'm sure there are more than maybe three or four rootstocks planted. In, there's 250 acres. There's more than one rootstock planted yeah. here. I think it's interesting, you know, my when my wife and I first started dating, she would always say, I don't understand why the wine industry or the vineyard side isn't treated more like a commodity. And I uh, not. It was. And, I, and, and, and that's just it. I said, I think what the wine industry has been trying to do is not be a commodity um, because you don't want to have these huge fluctuations and, and whatnot. Um, and, and hearing you talk about that, I mean, it truly was a commodity at one point, sure. um, especially the idea the fact that you wouldn't find out how much you're getting paid for the grapes until, you know, the next, the following halfway through the following and year. And you paid them some sort of average. Right. Yeah. 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 What a difference. I mean, what was then and then it's now. It's just so different, yeah. um, and and it seems so modern now and so antiquated back then. You know, paying an average uh, on a commodity price—it's crazy. But. Well, and even imagine Napa back then, John, in the in the sixties was you know 
chickens and eggs and cows, cows and, yeah. and the the nut house. That's the, right. The, you know, Napa was known more for Mola Avenue than it was for wine. I had a great uncle that was actually in that place for a while. <laughs> I yeah. was sort of looking at you kind of funny there. <laughs> but the guys, for example, I got friends around here who played sports and they went out of town the way you're from. They said Napa, they said, that was a Mola. Yeah. They remember, they knew them yeah. in basis of Mola Avenue. Yep. It's a crazy house. This is a story I don't know. What yeah. are you, So is it still open? Yeah. Yeah, still is. Still part of the system. State Hospital. State Hospital. And Reagan closed a bunch of them. Right. He closed Sonoma. That's how Sonoma Development are closed was under. was. And he, he closed Mendocino. We bought it. When he closed the Mendocino State Hospital, Mendocino, Mendocino State Hospital sat on 250 acres of ground, 600,000 floor feet, a square feet of floor space. Every piece of exposed metal was copper. Doors were oak and eight inches thick. Everything was mission tile, the whole thing. Wow. Plus, they had 500 acres of beautiful agricultural ground. They raised hogs and pigs and all that kind of stuff. So is that what is now the, um, the Buddhist temple up there? Yes. Yeah. We sold it to the Buddhists. Yeah. Yeah. We yeah. sold it to the Buddhists. Yeah. You know, and that's a kind of an interesting huh. story. Too. So I used to get a little bit of Chenin Blanc from a vineyard behind that. Okay. And it was 1940s planted Shannon. Um, but the Buddhists bought it and allowed the grapes still to be farmed until yeah. two years ago. And now it's lying dormant going mm-hmm. dying. Away. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah, but I've been to that and, and that, and that facility or that campus Looks exactly like Napa and Sonoma, so same era. Same um, era. But, same but era. You said there was an interesting story behind the that. The story is that we bought, we put together a deal for basically the Connecticut Museum, Life is Clean and Me, we bought it. And I'll never forget, it, it cost the state of California, I don't know, $100 million to build that place in 1970 dollars or 19, yeah. turn of the century dollars. Right. And it was for sale, but nobody would buy it. So we went up to Sacramento and we bid $2 million. I'll never forget walking up the street in Sacramento there and thinking, do I know something they don't know or do they know something I don't know? <laughs> right. I don't it's know. A cemetery <laughs> under so there. All, all, yeah. I mean, it's just nobody bought it. We, just, we, we got to buy it. Hmm. Um, but it had never, ever been on the tax rolls because it was owned by the state of California. Hmm. We didn't figure that too much. But all of a sudden, we became aware that there's a tax state coming up. And think of it, it looks like Princeton University. I mean, it's this gorgeous <laughs> place, and it's never been taxed. And we said, my God, you know, if they come in here and tax these mission tile roofs and all this stuff, what are we going to do? Well, we better sell it quick. And so we started, we started, we tried to get the Mendocino State College to buy it. They wouldn't buy it. Nobody would buy it. Then we began to talk to churches. We talked to Jimmy Jones, who was, <laughs> and all, there's all sorts of churches in, in Mendocino County. And then all of a sudden, this group, it was two monks. One went to MIT and one went to Harvard. And the master decided, the Buddhists decided they wanted it. So we negotiated that for a long time, and I'll never forget to make sure they did the right deal. One of the Buddhists walked from L.A. to Ukiah, but touched a knee every third step. 
walk. To cleanse it. To cleanse the place. To cleanse the idea. Wow. So we're sitting here. We said, oh, my God, what's going to happen now? And then we wanted the money, and, and they didn't have all the money. And so uh, and, and you, how do you get... How do you get um, a, a, a guarantee from the, and these? Are, these are real Buddhists, right? These are real Buddhists. How do you get some sort of a guarantee from them? You know. So finally, and I'm, I swear she was from Vietnam, and this was going. This was foreign aid money. I don't. Know. So this Buddhist lady came over, and she she had eighty percent of the of the cash, and I said, "That's fine. You know, I'll just I'll just hope you pay the rest of it." And they did. Wow. But and but it game it, it went <laughs> off the tax rolls. What was the tax that was due? Uh, no, I, nobody <laughs> ever figured it before. You think about it. Right. And two million dollars—that's the price of a house these days around here. Well, yeah, but it was, but it was, it was five hundred acres of farmland. Oh God! Yeah. Plus this two hundred fifty. Yeah. On the other thing. Amazing. What's it now? You say it's just. It's the, well, it's a teaching Buddhist college. Okay, yeah, um, right. and yeah. and they've done beautiful work up there, and there's peacocks running all over the place, and a yeah. huge gong. Remember, we saw the yeah, yeah well, and the gong. and the the vineyards. I mean, some of it is. I remember seeing some Mavedra or Carignan. I don't know what it was. It was like eight, ten feet tall. Yeah, the, the that's some crazy ladder. stuff up there. Definitely the Lodi ladder <laughs> kind of look. Um, wow, that's interesting. That's, that's a great story. All right, so um, now how do you decide that you want to now kind of move on? Well, actually, I want to know, who are you the one that decides who gets to buy the grapes out of Tokelon and who gets to make wine out of there, or do you leave that to someone else that gets no, to? No, no. Basic comes comes back here. Okay. We all, we all, everybody around here sells, you know, sells. Yeah. But I get to make the decision. Okay. But the decision make people ask, how do you determine it? Yeah. And the first thing is, who's the winemaker? Yeah, you know these are grapes that have to be made into wine, so we want to be sure that somebody can do that. And it can be an established winemaker, or it can be somebody who's just coming up who looks like they have promise. And then we want to know who the owner is. Does he understand this business and the quality requirement and it's expensive and things like that? That's how that's basically how we decide who, who gets Tokelon. How um, long is the list of applicants, <laughs> John? It's it's. <laughs> Well, I don't and, know. I, I don't know yeah. because you know we don't have anything to sell. There's about thirty guys, right. in, twenty-five yeah. guys in there, and there's guys call every day. But how yeah. many people want it? Is everybody? Yeah, right. Um, and, and well, does anybody ever drop out? Yes, yes. The people who come I in, mean, you know this. The people who come in the wine business with bright eyes and think they're going to do it, and find out they got to sell it. Right. You know that somebody said there was over a thousand skews of Napa Valley Cabernet. Now, there's probably only five skews of peanut butter. But why anybody would want to get in that business without, you know, being not in the business was crazy. But you think about getting in that business, it's not. It's the romance. It's, 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 it's the romance. The romance goes away. You know, it's like yeah. the honeymoon, you know, it just it, it goes away. After, and then you got to sell it and you got to get on the road and sell it. And you got to entertain people. You got to do lots of stuff. Yeah. It's not out. It's easy to grow it. Basically, it's easy to make it. Basically, hard to sell it. Yeah, right? hard, hard to sell one. You know. Can but, Can we talk a little bit about the Tokalon versus Tokalon? You know, the the vineyard, the land, as opposed to the um, the brand that was you know floated out there that I think now has gone away at least. 
Um, well, I don't know if things gone away. You know, Tokelon's famous forever. What happened was in 1989, Mondavi got a trademark for Tokelon and Tokelon Vineyard. And what that says is a trademark. You, and like Tim, Tim Mondavi said, we can put grapes in there from Nigeria if we want. But, but who else? Can, how do you get to do that? I'm curious, like if we decided, let's say, Monterosso Vineyard over in Sonoma, could you could somehow trademark that? You should not have been able to do that. They right. said, Mandavi said in 89, it has no meaning. It has no historic meaning. It has no current meaning. And nobody challenged it. How'd they get the name? Huh? How'd they get the name Tokamon? Well, the land that they were, that Mandavi planted on is part of the, is part of Hamilton Grab's original Tokalon vineyard. Yeah. Original Tokalon. What does Tokalon mean? To, well. The name. People, they said it doesn't mean anything. But then they've come back and everybody said that, that Crab said it meant the best or the highest beauty. Now, there's another story I like, which I like a whole lot better about Brad Togolon. <laughs> it's the a, one it's we're going to go with. It's a, it's, a Greek, <laughs> it's a Greek name, but, you know, at the, at the marriage feast of Cana, you know, Jesus poured the bad wine first, the good wine second. So somebody said what Jesus said, we've had some wine now. Now let's have the Togolon, which is the uh. better wine. I like that better. Yeah, like yeah. That. <laughs> That's a better story. But I don't know where Crab got the name. What wine I, are we drinking, Brian? So uh, we already uh, had the vice versa, uh, the 2018. Um, Beckstoffer, the Georgia Third Vineyard. And and then what I just poured was the uh, Vangie, Kirk Vangie Vineyards, um, Beckstoffer, Missouri Hopper, which you probably drove by as as we were yeah. Coming up here, yeah, we yeah. well, pulled we it for by. everybody but me. I noticed. I'm sorry. That. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wasn't. Your grandfather I, was at Emola, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, I, and just a one last thing. I mean, I, I, I guess I want to thank you guys for fighting the fight for that Tokalon. I mean, mm. historic pre president precedence means a lot, and yeah. um, you know, with so much. <laughs> Um, uh, trademark ownership and just like you know, kind of misleading this in in many businesses, but also the wine business. You know, when you have Benziger family, I shouldn't say. It. Yeah, I can say a Benziger family winery, and it's no longer family owned, and you know, still trying to market itself as being small and 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 local, but but it's not. I mean, it it's important to try to keep some consistency and some honor in our business. So anyway, integrity, thank you. integrity. integrity. So that thank we, you for, yeah, you know, yeah. fighting that fight. Yeah. I just felt I needed to say Well, that. Benziger actually is still Sonoma Mountain and they are still right there and local and, you know, they are owned by somebody. So the finances behind it are different. But, you know, I brought a, a question up earlier and was talking about foreign ownership. This is a listener question. Um, what are your thoughts on uh, China and other uh, sources coming in here and buying land and buying it up? Obviously, they don't have the same concept that you do of Napa and locality. Well, I don't know that the Chinese are here, but you have large corporations, a very American corporation constellation, and you have a very, I guess they're still mostly Australian treasury. There's very large corporations that had some interest in the wine business before and that's one thing and then you have 
of LVMH coming in and buying Phelps, and they understand quality and things like that. And then you have the Cathiards who just came in. They own Smith Lafitte, and they bought uh, Flora Springs. So it's a wine family buying a winery here. Now, it's, those things are very different. Very, very Absolutely. Those, okay. those seem fine. Well, I don't know how fine it is for the big corporation. I don't know how much they value Napa Valley and all of those things. They're, they're basically selling brands. Right. Rather than selling Napa. Well, Valley. I thought that you know the fa wine family. Oh, the wine family. Yeah, that's yeah. that's that's very good, and that's that's fine. And and for example, I guess Chateau Latour bought bought Isley. Right. Uh, that's you'd think they'll do a good job. Right. And when I, it feels good, I remember when when uh, the, the Domaine Chandon people came in and bought uh, winery mums. I'm not mums, but what am I thinking about? Right down in Yonville. Uh, not, uh, well, I'm thinking Schramsberg. Not Schramsberg, but, oh. It'll come to us. Like, but anyway, yeah, and <laughs> the French said, hey, the Americans are okay. And it's like when <clears throat> they came in and did Opus One. Right. They beginning to say Americans okay. And that's great. That's international. That's great. <clears throat> How they do and whether they value the value the brand and value Napa Valley is another question. Right. And and again, it goes back to if they're doing it with integrity, <coughs> it's not as important where it's owned if they're doing it with integrity. But you talked about Tokelon. That's owned by Constellation. Right. Bob and Davi said he would never promote a vineyard. He was going to promote the Napa Valley, the Robert Mondavi brand. He right. had no interest in vineyard designation or anything like that. He owned more, more of Crab's Tokelon than I do. Right. Now, after the success we've had with it, now they're beginning to promote Tokelon and putting it on everything. Right. It, which they can do right. because they have the trademark. Right. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about that Napa Valley value. Uh, and the values in the valley itself. Um, how has it changed over the last, I mean, you've been here quite a while, but over the last 10 or 20 years, it's really gone through some dramatic changes. Uh, in terms of values? Values and the, the area itself. Okay. I mean, it's kind of an adult Disneyland for wine freaks right now. And, you know, it's, it's just changed. Hotels, restaurants, people, it's you know I like what Tor said that in that they used to you used to here in Napa used to think as long as they were gone by sundown oh don't let yeah. the sun set on the tourists don't let the sun yeah. set on the tourists right yeah, yeah. And that was the old you know they give them some wine to drink but right. don't, no place to eat no place to right. sleep I mean it's yeah. changed a lot since then it's changed a lot. but also John me it's a great place to live yeah you oh, can say all that you absolutely. want about all that other stuff right, and it, right. it's paradise then there's some trouble in paradise but it's still the best it's a great place to live i mean god look look around here yeah. Yeah. it has changed it has changed dramatically it was not wine country before because of what we said never let the sun set on the tourists so we had no no inns and, and no restaurants and to be wine country you got to have hospitality so that has developed and that has developed on the same quality as the wine and it's Cabernet country now, and that's premium as it is. But it's it's very expensive here. Everything is very expensive here, uh, and it's very expensive. A lot of places, a lot of wonderful places, are very very expensive. That's why they're wonderful places. That's why they're wonderful places. But think about this, and I've, I've said this all the world. Napa Valley, sixty miles from San Francisco, this beautiful place by local ordinance. All of the, the, the primary use 
of all the land in the unincorporated area has to be agriculture. Now that's, it. everywhere else it's urban or commercial uses. So what's happened here is that one, when we started out, we had the ag preserve and that limited people to was from 20 acres or 40 acres, one house, one winery. And that was very important in the early days because you absolutely could not make money owning and operating a vineyard here when we came. The only people who could do that were people who had no investment and those were passed down through the family or the wineries who could lose money on the grapes and make money on the wine. And if that had continued, you know, Adam Smith was right, you know, that, that if, if, if an investor is not making a, a reasonable return on investment, he's going to move that money. He's going to move that investment. And they would have done it. Absolutely. No local ordinance is going to force people to keep in, in a bad investment. But we did what we did and what the people did is they first give, give credit to the winemakers who made great wine after, after phylloxera and charge for it, charge high prices for it. And then what we did through our pricing system, we began to change the grapes from being commodity to being a specialty product. The value is based on what the consumer will pay for it. So the price of grapes all of a sudden became a percentage or a fraction of the price of the wine, which is now very high. So all of a sudden the price of grapes go up, the return to vineyards, the value of vineyards and the, the economic return of the vineyard goes way up. So the vineyards now become the long-term economic highest and best use of the land, not a commercial use, not an urban use. And on that basis, they'll stay in vineyards. Yeah. Yeah. The local ordinance still helps, but that's what keeps Napa green. That's what keeps this place. And, and I say to people, and it's, it's very fashionable in a to say the, People in Napa are greedy and all that kind of stuff. But you buy a bottle of wine at a very high price here, you get value, you get a wonderful wine, plus you keep this place like it is. And the, the people who have done surveys say most of the tourists love the surroundings more than they like the wine. It's amazing. I mean, they, they said that. I mean, people have done those surveys. Yeah. So, and, you can, and, and you can imagine, like, you know, in the broad expanses of Napa Valley, how it could have been nothing but houses and commercialism silicon valley feeding oh, down like it, it it could have very easily oh it, could, it was on that route it yeah. was on that road I like sonoma would dominate right yeah. right, yeah. right. <laughs> well sonoma has you know it's it is traffic it is expensive and so i understand why people would go to sonoma yeah, yeah. but even yeah. sonoma has has seen the same thing happen and i yeah. think the reason why you know, there's value there with those vineyards staying in production and, and, and whatnot. It um, is. Yeah. Yeah. Because Sonoma also, Sonoma County in general could have been a lot, a lot more housing. Well, it's so interesting that you get up around the one-on-one corridor and it's just yeah. apartment yeah. building, yeah. commercial, yeah. apartment, commercial. Yeah. And all a very new. Yeah. So. It's an urban sprawl yeah. Yeah. all the way up to. Hey, what do you guys think of these wines? Well, I was going to ask about that. Yeah. <laughs> They're both beautiful, and I realized I probably should have poured the Vengi before the vice versa, but I, I, it's got a little more acidity going on in there. Um, this, this, the first one was the Vengi. Uh, the first one was the vice versa. The first one was the vice versa. Um, yeah. And the second one was the yeah. George III. This is yeah. Missouri Hopper. This is George III. Uh, and I like the first one. It's just better for my palate. John's a Bordeaux lover. Okay. 
I've had to convert them to some other grapes other than Cab. Um, but I could see that, of, of course, John, that the vice versa being right up your alley. Yeah, absolutely. Me, I like I like to salivate a little bit. So I really like that uh, more intense acidity. They're the both really beautiful wines. And, and I think you should allow each of those winemakers to continue making grape, making wine from the grapes. Well, and Bart, right when you smell these wines, you know where they're from. Right. Um, especially the vice versa. As soon as I put my nose in it, I mean, you're, it's. But the thing is that they're both 2018s. Yeah. They're both farmed by us, same way. Yeah. Well, they're very different. Yeah. That's terroir. Yeah. That's what happens here. This yeah. this wine of all their heritage vineyards has more red fruit in it than any other. So, how different fruit. is the terroir between these two? Um, Missouri Hopper is, is uh, the south end of the Oakville. Appalachian, and it is cooler than it is up here. Here, here this is right here. This is right. Rutherford right here. So it's cooler. And what I find is, as you go, as you go north, you get a little more clay in the soil as you come back and forth. And it's it's warmer up here. You know, in Napa Valley, it gets warmer. And you're you're good. You. What three miles difference between yeah. those two? And the and there's probably times where the fog makes it down there, but doesn't make it up here. Yeah, and the valley bends, you know, and it bends about down there. Yeah, so it's all those things. Yeah. Um. So so on farming, I mean, I I think I heard you right. You said you know we farm it the same way. I mean, basically the same. Basically, way. I mean, basically. so you have a you have a unique set, or you have your set of parameters that you operate within, and then you change obviously year to year what you're seeing going on in the vineyard. But for the most part, it's all kind of the same farming philosophy. Basically the, the same farm. Some of us cane prune cordon, depending on different things, and we have in the Napa Valley we the. We have a thousand acres here. Five hundred of it is the heritage vineyards. Five hundred is all the basic Cabernet and hundred or red grapes and all. Uh, but there's a guy who farms the heritage vineyards, except for this one. There's a guy who farms Canaris, and there's a guy who farms this in Melrose. So they're a little bit different mm -hmm. too. Sure, all of them a little bit different. And then the, the overall guy used to farm all of Napa, but the general manager here. Is, is over. So there's, there's at least two trained viticultural eyes in every place. And and no, but no real mountain vineyards. Everything's. I I I don't want to generalize it as valley floor, but generally. The and 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 the benchlands for sure. Yeah, I never got involved with the the uh, the hillsides here around because I couldn't get any uniformity with all the soil streaks mm. that are here. Right. You can't get any uniformity in the vineyard. So we stayed out of there. And frankly, if you think about it, you tell me where the great wines came from, from Napa. They didn't come from the hillside. There used yeah. to be that controversy, but you yeah. can't find somebody on Harlan. Harlan's a blend. Right? Yeah. Right. I mean, but tell me where the great mountain vineyards are. They're all yeah. on the valley floor and the, and the, yeah. and the bench land. But to, to follow that, story you know after we finished uh replanting napa after phylloxera about 1994 95 we thought phylloxera would go to mendocino county and it didn't so we said we want to grow and we want to grow cabernet sauvignon so we looked for as much land as we could find in mendocino county but couldn't find a lot that's pear ground up there and so you can look and, and we want to be up here we want to stay, you know, we, we, we've been here long enough. We saw the whole development of the Central Coast, and we didn't want any part of that. 
and I'm going to divert a little bit, is that the business up the business on the Central Coast is a few large sellers and a few large buyers. That's one economic system. And if you're not big guy in your family business, that's tough. Right. Up here, there's a whole lot of small buyers and a whole lot of small sellers. So we want to stay up here. Right. Secondly, that I believe that the the good Cabernet from California or America goes north of the Bay of San Francisco. So we want to stay there. So we're in Mendocino. We can't find anything. We can't go to Sonoma. We decided we'd go to Lake County. Yep. Lake County had a terrible reputation. Yep. Still not very good. But so we went over there. As we started looking differently, digging holes. And we farm here at about three to 400 feet above sea level. Over there, we started 1,400 and go to 24. We're farming hillsides over there. Right. So while we wouldn't farm hillside here, we will there. Difference, all the soil in the Red Hills District is blown on by the eruption of Mount Kanakta. There's no soil streaks. And it's, it's all so uniform. That, that all red, yeah. full of obsidian. It's perfect Cabernet land. Yeah. yeah. So we started buying the hillsides over there. Yeah. And so we, we did it because we wanted to grow Cabernet, plus... You know, my feeling was that Napa Cabernets are just getting very expensive. And when we started, it was 100. They're going to be 100, 100 plus, and you know what they are now. Where do you find the really good 60 to $80 bottle of, of, of California Cabernet? Sonoma, if you can find it. And there's that much. Yeah. Right. But where are you going to, and Mendocino's that much. Yeah. Where are you going to find your volume? We got volume in Lake County with those yeah. soils, which are just perfect. So that's that was a, one of the main motivations for wanting to grow and, and to grow in the Red Hills. And who are those customers up there? Those customers now are big people, the Gots and the Hesses and the Gallows and those people. Mm. We sell about 35% of that by its grapes. We sell 65% as bulk wine to all sorts of people. Right. And and that's that's good business. We don't it's not the business we want to be in, but it's business. But our job going forward to create a brand for the Red Hills. Yeah. Now, several years ago, we set up a program. It's a windy road going up there. We couldn't get the wineries to go up, so we said, let's get the winemakers to go up. So we started out talking to 10 winemakers, all of whom had made a $150 bottle of wine. We ended up with seven. And we said, look, we will give you an acre of grapes, three to four tons of grapes. You make it under these protocols, and the protocols we established were for a $150 bottle of wine. And then the wine's yours. It's yours. Sell it. Do whatever you want. But we want to. We want to see if we can establish. We have the quality up there to produce an eighty to a hundred bottle. That's quite an investment, isn't it? In well, your, from you. Well, we've got two thousand acres up there. That's a bigger investment. <laughs> <That's right>. <laughs> <laughs> and so, what happened was that there's only one who actually put it on the market because the other guys they all had day jobs, and like we said, easy to make it, easy to grow it. They found out what it would take to sell it, and that's not what they really wanted to do. But we established yeah. the quality. We established the quality was there, yeah. and that's extremely important to get to the next step to build to build an appellation up there, build a brand. Yeah, well, well, that's where we are right now. Aren't you doing something with UC Davis up there as well? Yes, yes. We this is a climate change experiment. Yeah. We've got I think it's ten different clones and ten different uh, uh, rootstocks and the permutations and commutations see how they affect how climate change affects them from my point of view see what the changes in quality might be yeah 
So the goal is not to have Lake County on the bottle. It's to have Red Hills on the bottle. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. We should wish because the Lake County appellation was so bad. We created our own appellation. There's eight of us. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's really amazing. Um, that, that that's what it took to do that. And I swear I've had wine. I've had wine that said Red Hills. On yeah. yeah. Obsidian. 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 Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. What was that? Obsidian Casey. Uh, yeah. Okay. Peter uh, Molnar. Peter Molnar. Yeah. 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 Okay. We're working on how, getting Peter on the show also. Yeah. Um, so with all the advances in viticulture um, uh, and it's harder and harder to find um, labor, I assume for you, just like everybody else. Um, are you liking some of these um, new uh, uh, mechanical harvesting? Um, <laughs> We're all fascinated. With yeah. This. I mean, all, all of these, all the new vineyard equipment, you know, for under, under the row or under the vine, um, you know, yeah. cultivation and, things, yeah. and mowing and stuff. Are you, are you guys, I mean, now I hear that there's a mechanical harvester that will work on hillsides. Um, do you have any thoughts or clarity well, on that? hundred percent of our grapes in Lake County picked by mechanical harvester mm-hmm. and about 98% in Mendocino, none here. Okay. But we've just announced the, uh, the purchase of four electric tractors. Okay. That's, this is all part of our carbon sequestration gas thing. And also we've just bought some under the, some mowers that go under the vine. You see all these strips yep. and we got to find a way to, mow under that so we don't have to use pre-emerge or anything like that yeah so the answer is yes i mean mechanical harvesters the wineries around here don't want their grapes picked right again i didn't think that was going to be just in terms of of sustainability we don't use glycosites anymore we use but we do use some other chemicals and we have a problem cleaning under the vine so you got to get a mower who will go under there and won't tie up the vines so we just bought a couple and they They've been working for a week. And so we think mechanical means huh. of cleaning under the vines. Now you could burn it, you could put electricity there, but we're trying to find a mower that will go under there. Plus, you know, the cosmetics around here, everything they should look clean. I know. Well, that's not gonna look so clean anymore. Yeah. They yeah. Got, we're gonna do what we need to do. And people are gonna get used to it, looking at it, and it's gonna say to them, sustainability. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And and I think that's just, as you say, the, the, the optics on it, the tourists will expect it to see it a certain way. Yeah. If we start training them that, you know, it doesn't yeah. have to look that way. There is a better way. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's another way. Yeah. Um, you know, we'll all individually decide what's better for us. Right? And when they see these things, and how does it get? Somebody said, well, we put a chemical on it. Well, they don't like that. Right. They don't like that. Right. So, so and we it, don't like it either. I mean, we don't. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. If yeah. we can. But. Certain things like certain bugs and things we have to use. Right. right. We, I mean, there's around here, you know, in terms of, how do I say, sustainability or whatever, you know, there's biodynamics, whatever that is. Right. There's, there's uh, organic. Right. There is sustainable. There is Napa Green. Yep. There's fish family farming. Yep. We say we're responsible. We're responsible farmers, which includes be responsible to the, to the vineyards of the earth, but also be responsible to our people, to our clients, to our community, all that kind of stuff, because that sustainability thing just gets very confusing and becomes a more marketing tool than anything else. Right? How many people work for you for the farming company? There's probably permanent people 
in each county there's about 20 yeah okay but then we we crew up right you know yeah. different times of the year yeah. to a couple of hundred yeah. each place yeah it's awesome and th these little mechanical mowers are, is like are we talking like a Roomba? Like for... no, no, it's something that is. It's an attachment to a tractor, and and they have sensors oh. that tell it to move underneath the vine. And okay. some of the early early versions of them were very very hard on the vines. Really, yeah. Um, uh, didn't do the, quite frankly a very good job. And but they seem to be getting better and better. I mean, it's kind of the same thing with mechanical harvesters. It used to be mechanical harvesting was just. Tapio, it was just juice brutal and yeah, and, yeah. and and the quality in those has really changed also really changed. i'm sure you know more than yeah, I these do. these have a thing that goes in and out and then it goes mm -hmm. around the vine and the, the problem it's very easy to do it except right around the vine yeah and so then the closer you get to the like he's saying you begin to beat up the vine yeah. old vines don't count they're tough enough but the young vines count so i think we're probably going to leave those those cartons on them for another year or so yeah but doesn't that make sense? You know, the Roomba that people use to vacuum their homes and it has a little sensor on it. Well, couldn't you just turn one of those loose with some blades on it out in the vineyard? How big is your backyard? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It. He lives in a housing development in Runner Park. So no. <laughs> but that, he doesn't quite understand. that's what we're doing to a certain yeah. extent, but it's, it's guided by tractor. We need yeah. that power. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, what do you see happening in the future? Yeah, what are you excited about in the future? <laughs> Besides Red Hills. Besides Red Hills. I'm excited about Red Hills. And you know, I'm the, excited the about The thing Hill. is that, you know, everybody's worried about climate change. Climate change. And if you look at the history, not only the great business, look at the history of America. We've, we've, we've won and we beat other people with technology. And that's the same thing. In the, I maintain that we have gotten to where we are in the vineyard business here in the, and, and in the winery business on the back of technology. What we've done in the vineyards, what they've done in the wine, we'll do it again. So I'm excited about seeing the, get, get, see that technology work. No. I'm really excited to see that technology work. I'm excited to get more for us in Napa, more non-Cabernet vineyard designates than we've got. We have 121 vineyard designates. 102 are Cabernet, the rest are Chardonnay, Merlot, and things like that. Yep. And but the real excitement is to build that brand in in Lake County. Yeah, yeah. And and to a certain extent for that Cabernet, we've got we've got a wonderful ranch in Mendocino growing Cabernet. And, and whereabouts in Mendocino? It's in Hopland. Okay, it's in Hopland. But Police aren't, Creek. Aren't you doing Chardonnay and Pinot as well, or no? Not in. in... We do Pinot. We do Pinot in Canaris. We right. do lots and lots of Chardonnay in in uh, Mendocino County. Yep. But Pinot Pinot needs to be grown by vintners. You know, it's small, it doesn't yield, it rots. Hey, let them grow it. <laughs> we we got a little bit. We got a little bit. I mean, yeah. we got like 30 acres or something down in Canaris, 34 yeah. acres. But Pinot's not something a grower wants to grow. Yeah. And and what about, what do you like to drink? What is, what's in your yeah, cellar? What's your That's favorites? not, you know, beyond your, all of your. In private. Well, you don't have to be in public. Like to me to say this, but I like things that are old and expensive. There you go. <laughs> so, but I've got lots of Cabernet that I've got. So I like. I'm, you drink. You drink Cabernet. Mostly. I drink Cabernet, but I drink Scotch and I drink gin right. and tonic and yeah. I drink vodka. Yeah. And I yeah. drink and I drink beer and you know depending on what it is. But right. you know if I go when I go home tonight, I'm not going to drink one of these Cabernets. I'm going to have a nice glass of Sauvignon Blanc. Right. Or if I drink Sauvignon Blanc two or three nights in a row, I want something with a little flavor. I drink Chardonnay. Right. 
yeah. or uh, something somebody's given me. Right. You know, somebody gives me a Riesling and what is what the hell does that taste like? But yeah. I, I like, I, I really like wine. Right. I mean, I can't imagine having a meal without it. And I really like Cabernet, you know, it's, and oh, you know, I'm not telling you anything over some past years, it just got too big. It's, right. It was not a pleasant drinking experience. So you avoid those uh, and just keep on going. And a lot of them was made from our vineyards, you know. So you, you, you see, you see the wines from your vineyards, the style, that style kind of shifting. Um, they're, they're lightening up. Yeah. They are like alcohols lightening up. And when you said that before the vintners said oh, they're balanced wines. Well, they were balanced wines, but they were balanced at too high a level. Right. But it's, right. it's all about, you know, a great wine, in my view, has to do two things. One, it has to stand the taste of time, test of time. And two, it has to complement food. Right. But some of those Cabernets, it just, just got to the be food. Too much. It just got, no. Yeah. So now, what are you doing in your free time? We know Tor will grab a, a rod and go out and hit, uh, no. do a little fly fishing, which I don't know if you know, but I'm going to tell you, we're going to go out and take some pictures of Tor, I think, on Friday. One of our friends works for a fly fishing magazine, and yeah. he was he was saying that we might be able to go out in the um, in the vineyard and do a little casting. Tor is a fly fisher. Tor is a good, yeah. good friend of mine. I guess he told yeah. you that. Yeah. But uh, I used to fly fish, but not like him. Yeah. He and Susan went down to Patagonia recently and fly fished. I would go up to Henry's Forks every now and then. But Tor goes to basketball games with me and football games with me and and, yeah. and I used to run a lot, I used to marathons and all that stuff. I can't do that anymore. But I like to be outside. What are your favorite yeah. basketball and football teams? Well the Warriors. Okay. Good. Thank you. Good. Big game tonight. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Tonight. Last one, right? No. Two and two? No, no, no. Oh, it's two no. to two. Yeah. Seven games. I next, thought it was you got to win best four. Next to last, four John. Okay. We hope. Okay. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, you know, I've been around long enough. We're season ticket holders at the 49ers, the Giants, and the, the Warriors. Oh, nice. And we've had great times with the 49ers in the 90s and yeah. then the, the Giants in the 2000s. Yeah. And now the Warriors. It's just so I'll do that. Yeah. I do that. And I got grandkids and all that stuff. So, yeah. Yeah. But yeah. I don't I used to ride horses and run and I don't do that anymore. Right. <laughs> well, we appreciate you inviting us here today. Oh, Thank you. Are we done? Uh, fun. Yeah, I mean, I know, I know there's more uh, wine to drink, John, uh, so you're probably no, no, a little no. disappointed. I, I, I just thought uh, we ought to talk about these specifically because the second one you poured has opened up so much. Oh, I'm sure. And it's still got that juiciness. Well, I'm, John, I'm hoping that he's going to let us take these back to <laughs> Sonoma. Yeah, you can take those with you. Take well, we brought, you. Uh, we brought a... Uh, Cabernet, yeah, and where's that from? Who's uh, that's probably from the Simons Vineyard, yes. which is in between Phil Caturi's house and Robert Cayman's house, so um, over there on Moon Mountain. And then that Grenache is sort of an odd story. That's the one with the real um, pretty fancy label with the wings on there. Yeah, um, um, there's a, there's a little bit of uh, Grenache planted up in the Oakville Ranch. Um, that all goes to 16600. And that's a project they did with yeah. a gentleman named Philippe Cambi um, um, yeah. from France. And so that's, uh, as far as we know, the only Grenache produced out of Oakville Ranch. Um, yeah, I think we sell grapes to somebody called Simon. 
Oh, really? There's, yeah, it's the people that own this vineyard. Um, they make wine, but they don't sell it. I don't know exactly oh. what they do with it all. Okay, all right, so I don't know. <laughs> they make don't wine know. and don't yeah, sell no, it. Yeah, I think that yeah. It, yeah, I think it's just self-consumption. I think it's yeah. family. Oh, yeah. maybe, maybe it's different then. Brian. Well, they've figured out the perfect wine business model is it's it's fun to make and then don't bother even trying to sell it. Yeah. <laughs> Give it to your friends, yeah. That's yeah. right. Yeah. <laughs> if you can work that out, boy, you've really made it here. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to ask you if you had a favorite out of everything you have had a chance to drink in Napa and Sonoma and around the world. Do you have a favorite? No. You know, the thing is, you remember the experience. There's some, I drank some wonderful wines when I was having a whole lot of fun. And I drank some great wines when I wasn't having a whole lot of fun. Yeah. And so the the wine but the good fun is the one i remember yep. but i remember the experiences more than the wines that's a yeah. that's yeah. a great way to look at it have you traveled over to uh france and italy and mm -hmm. and what's your favorite spot around france here it comes uh, <laughs> uh in the country oh yeah me too in the country yeah Loire, I, mean, I love the war i love down around avignon and the uh yeah, region down there but when i go to when I go, oh. I generally go to enjoy the place rather. I mean, busy with some wineries, uh, but it would be somewhere down there in Aix, in Provence. It would be Provence for sure. Yeah. And then I love Florence. Yeah, it's a beautiful spot. Florence, isn't it? Yeah, all there. Amazing. There. I've been I've been to Palio three times. You know, that's a horse race in Siena. No. Oh, that's the best. All bareback, all amateur, all cheating. You can cheat. You can do anything you want. It's totally Italian. Uh, from point a to point b right you know you go around a circle oh, okay around a circle yeah and one one of, and it's all bareback and one of the corners is like that and they pad the stands because they the horses throw up the riders off and all that shit. i imagine a little betting uh goes oh, on. oh so, well unbelievable betting. Yeah. <laughs> i mean it, like you say you can you can cheat you can yeah. do anything you want to you can hit yeah. the ride you hit it once you track tag you anything you want <laughs> I'm gonna have to. I look mean, you that can make up. deals. Yeah, well, it's very Italian. Yeah. Why, why don't Why don't we have that in America? <laughs> you You do. You call it politics. <laughs> nah. Are you a car guy at all? You get over to Italy. Do you like the Ferraris over there, Maseratis? Well, you know, things? I say I'm not. I say I'm not. But I just sold my Maserati because I wasn't driving it. I had a place to drive it. I've got a, a 31. Ford pickup, 1931 Ford pickup. Nice. Right? Which I don't drive either. This I got to get rid of. So what's your daily driver? Oh, well, that car is out there. I have a, I have a Porsche. There you go. Yeah. 911? Right. No, no. It's a, it's a truck. It's a it's like hearse. SUV. It's a hearse. It's an SUV. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. The Cayenne? Cayenne, yeah. 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 It's yeah. Nice cars, man. They, yeah. they, they do a great job. They're just too big. They're too big. Yeah, I wish I hadn't. I had a Lexus. I loved the Lexus, and then I hated the grill that they did. Oh, yeah, so then it's I, ugly. But my next car will be electric. My my yeah. Lexus was a, you know, a battery hybrid. Hybrid. Yeah. But I'm next going to be electric. Yeah. Yeah. Lots of changes going on out there with electric. I mean, so many people. It used to be Tesla only. That's it. And now I, I saw that Hyundai. Uh, you know, I mean, I'm not particularly hot on buying a Korean car, um, just because just because I think it's not a higher quality. Um, yeah. But they want to be number two and 
you know, in the electric market immediately. Yeah. Everything's coming out. You're not going to be able to buy, a, you know. A, well, didn't the governor combustion. say by 2035 you can't? That's what he said. Can't buy. That's what he said. They always throw some dates out there. <laughs> and then they always extend them yeah, too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hey, I wanted to tell you that there's actually because of the Presidio is why I'm here today. Really? Um, my father was in Vietnam, and when he on his way back, they stationed him at the Presidio. He's he's from Ohio, and uh, while he was there, met my mom, um, got her pregnant, and then uh, ended up staying here. Well, that's great. Yeah, but he's got some really nice memories of uh, being stationed at the Presidio. Presidio. It's beautiful driving through there now. What a stunning um, spot on earth! And man. you know, Tor Tor came back from Vietnam. He ended up yeah. there. Yeah, yeah, we we talked, we spoke with him about that. Yeah, yeah. I was there before. Well, when did your dad come through? So he's coming back been, from Vietnam it's yeah, in the 70s. So I'm thinking, I'm not I'm thinking 68, 69, 69, something like that. Well, Tor came 69. I was yeah. there 61 to 63. Yeah. Uh, it's much simpler. Yeah. yeah. That's everything. But it's still yeah. it a wonderful post. This yeah. whole place is, I mean, I know it's expensive. I know the people are crazy. I know all that kind of stuff. But <laughs> yeah. It's wonderful. There's a reason we're here. The reason we're still here. There's a reason I moved out here after 50 years in Chicago and New York City. I mean, I'm tired of concrete, and I like the green. This is pure and simple as you can get it. This is a green haven. That's it. It's beautiful. Well, I tell you the thing. We were born raised in the South, and in the South, it's who your family is. We would be fine there. Well, we cousins would go to school in New England. Don't care where you're born, but where'd you go to school? You go to Harvard or Dartmouth or Brown or whatever. Out here, I don't care where you're born. I don't care where you're born. What are you doing for me now? Now, <laughs> now, that is kind of superficial in a lot of ways, but it's also kind of exciting in a lot of ways because they're the people who were, wherever they were from, they were the active group there. And they said, this, you know, North Dakota is not exciting enough for me. I'm going to California. Right. Yeah. And you come out here. Right. And then that's, the, so it's like everything else, it's the people more than the weather more than anything it's the people yeah yeah, yeah. well there certainly is a different attitude out here yeah. i just have to you know and i i enjoy it and you've you embraced are... it fully john <laughs> <laughs> I, I look i'm enjoying myself here good you know good. Re retirement and having fun but i've got more friends out here yeah. than i had certainly in the advertising business in chicago yeah. and new york yeah. uh you know that's a little crazy it's a crazy job and yeah. it, it was very mad men yeah. um However, you know, the, the, the feel out here and the vibe is, yeah. is just wonderful. Yeah. You know, especially in Sonoma, it's a very slow town. Yeah. It, it is. Yeah. It's just, and it wants to stay that way. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, they don't want, they don't let the big box stores in. They don't, yeah. you know, they really are very careful about their development. And especially with the green belt around town, yeah. you know, you, there can't be urban sprawl yeah. until you get up to Santa Rosa. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the land is too valuable around yeah. here to, yeah. to build apartments. Yeah. You know, I mean, when it's vineyard, you know, it's like going to Bordeaux um, or, or Burgundy, any of those places in France where every single little yard has a vineyard in it. Yeah. And, and yeah. it's been passed on for yeah. so long. I think that's probably why the French wine is less expensive, for the most part, because they don't they don't have the big tab to finance yeah. the land. Yeah, I mean, what's an acre of planted uh, vineyard worth around here these days? One just sold for a million dollars. Million dollar acre. Okay, not too shabby, huh? 
How long before, you know, well, there's that old joke. How do, how do you make a million dollars in one? You start with two, all right? You sell a piece of land for a million dollars. <laughs> Andy. You um, can ask Ren about that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, Ren's been involved in that. You yeah. Know? I mean, he's, what well, is Ren, he? Yeah, Ren sold it. Uh, he and yeah. Gene Phillips sold it. Yeah. What do you think of these uh, the really extreme cult wines that you know charge so very much for what they're you know what they're producing? I mean, you I'll, mean I'll, like Chateau Lafitte and Chateau Latour? All I'm talking wines like screaming way more than they're worth. Is that what you're talking about? Petrus. You know, no, I was really talking about Screaming Eagle because they're the most visible one. Well, they I mean they sell fifteen cases or something like that, and it, and somebody Parker loved them, and so that right. works. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's all all about marketing luxury goods. Who's yeah. that? Tor was really pushing that uh, concept. You know, it's, it's, it's yeah. you know it's a luxury good. It's a Ferrari. It is. You don't have to you don't have to buy it, but if you want it, it's there. Right. Well, it's like a car. You know, are you buying transportation? You're buying a statement. Right. You know, and the one and that I think. For the for the pallets around this table, you really can tell the difference. But a lot of pallets, they can't tell the difference. They just need that to show off. Right. And that's fine. I mean, we saw Smirnoff like that forever. Right. Uh, and and Lancers. Right. <laughs> so it's all real. But thank you for coming. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Andy, thank Andy, you for coming. Thank you much very much for your hospitality. Okay? Absolutely. All right. all right. Any shout outs? I you know, not at this point. I okay. think um uh we see if we can get back across the county line without anyone stopping us. And, I've got my papers uh, in order, man. They'll let you go that way. It's easy. <laughs> and just to let, just to let listeners know that, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, Andy said it was okay. Um, we are going to get some info out to you next week, um, starting to plan Grenache Day in September. But uh, it's all sort of come together. So when I have, once I have a one sheet that I can read to everyone, we'll actually put that all together. But um, you're going to want to plan your vacation. All right. Thank you, Andy. Okay. Thank you. Take care. All right. Have a good Drink rest of the day. Drink more Beckstoffer Cabernet. There you go. There you go. <laughs>